Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Logocentric. I'm your host, Daxton Page, and today we're gonna to talk about the relationship between art and responsibility. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. Please make sure to like this episode and subscribe if you haven't already and hit the notification bell to be notified when episodes just like this come out. So let's jump right into it. Art and responsibility. Do they have any relationship? Should just art be, you know, careless adventures into what the human can create, you know? In some sense, yes, and in some sense there should be a reasonable restraint on that impulse. So as a musician, I'm speaking um, only from the point of view of my experience within the music industry, within a particular genre and a culture within that genre. So I'm not claiming to have, you know, knowledge over every single genre's cultures and all the little mini cultures and everything and how they're all interplaying. I'm mostly focused on rock and metal. That's my home. That's where I grew up. That's what I write. That's what I like to listen to most of the time. So I sit in the hard rock metal culture. Now, what has the hard rock metal culture turned into nowadays compared to what it was? So let's sort of take a little gander back into history for a moment. So let's go to the 60s. So in the late 60s, you had bands like Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, right? And what they really were for that time, it was called heavy metal, but by, by our time, you could just call that like heavy blues or like just classic rock. So there was this little bump up in the late 60s where we went a little heavier, right? Now, what were the themes of most of these bands? Well, it kind of varied, right? Zeppelin was very like almost like flower child side of hard rock and, you know, blues rock and stuff like that. Black Sabbath was more the darker sort of occult style lyrics wise, you know, side of rock and metal. And then Deep Purple was kind of that more in between you know, they were talking about girls, but they were talking about cars, and they were talking about all different kinds of stuff, right? So there was a bit of a spectrum as to what rock was, but culturally, rock has always been viewed as a home for outcasts and the rebels, right? So that's where we go. We go to rock if you're a rebel or something like that. Well, that was the, the cultural sentiment for sure. Um, now, there's been a lot of intelligent people who have come and go through the rock community for the past 50 years. I mean, it's not just like it's been a monolith in the sense that it's just been about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, however, from a cultural standpoint, if we're looking at culture, mainstream culture in America, more specifically and somewhat in the UK, we kind of went from hippie, you know, sort of free love, that sort of stuff in the 60s, out of that into a more rebellious, almost hedonistic type of culture where it was more just about doing what you wanted to do and saying stick it to the man and then by the 80s it turned into like a party life culture where you know everything was just that's where sex drugs and rock and roll really cemented itself into the broader culture right that's what rock became and it became that so much that it actually became played out by the late 80s right and so you have this very formulatic cookie cutter in the box style of rock and metal that was supposed to be edgy and rebellious and now it's like you know uh, uh moms and little teens and stuff are all like oh yeah i love rock and metal so it didn't seem to quite mix right so you had this turn towards more of an edge 
in the late 80s, early 90s. This is where grunge came into play, and this is where I'm going to focus most of my efforts from the 90s onward. One, I was born in 95, so I grew up inside of that mid-90s culture, but that's where I have the most study and research is in the 90s onwards, but I will reference the 80s a little bit. So, let's go into what happened, because I think this shift, uh, this cultural shift from the late 80s to the 90s is actually really important. Um, so what happened, I mentioned, was that 80s rock and metal became very glam, very commercial, very bubblegum, as you could say. And what happened is up in the Northwest, mostly in places like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, and those suburbs outside of those metros, you had a scene that was growing that was really the beginning of what you would call alternative music, right? And the reason it was called alternative is because it was just alternative to the mainstream, right? That's where that term alternative really came from. And so, at least from a rock cultural standpoint. Now, what were these bands? These bands were Nirvana, Mudhoney, Soundgarden, um, Pearl Jam, but was Mother Love Bone at the time. And then you had, um, I'm forgetting one, uh, Alice in Chains. And so you had all these bands that were sort of forming and brewing in the, the mid to late 80s, all the way on to the early 90s, where it really blew up. So once the 80s scene became very, you know, repetitive and predictable, what happened is this 90s culture sort of took place. Now, what people were looking for was some novelty, something that was new, something that was authentic, right? Now, this ties in perfectly chronologically to the rise of postmodern critical race intersectional feminist theory, okay? By the mid 80s and on, you know, this is it had roots way before that. But what happened is as this became popular in the mainstream, so did grunge and so did this alternative movement. Now, what was the alternative movement focused on? Authenticity of identity, right? Because everybody else was this glam commercial posers, right? And you wanted people who were authentic. Now, who was the king of authenticity in the early 90s? Kurt Cobain. He became an icon because he was the sort of poster child for the authentic, angsty grunge kid. Right, And so he became the cultural icon for grunge. Now, Eddie Vedder played a big part of that because of how big Pearl Jam was. But as far as like long-standing cultural legacy, Kurt Cobain is more known than Eddie Vedder is. And what happened was Kurt had a very cynical philosophy, right? He had a very contradictory, paradoxical way of writing lyrics, but it was very droped and... Um, nihilism and cynicism, right? And so this sort of became the cultural fad, so to speak. And now I want to talk about Kurt a little bit more later, but I also want to talk about somebody else who was a big part of the 90s rock metal scene, Alice in Chains. Now, Alice in Chains to me sort of outlines where some of the hedonistic problems culturally sort of come from. Now, keep in mind, heroin was a big problem in the Northwest during the birth of this grunge movement. So it's not like the grunge movement came around and then there was a heroin problem. It's sort of like there was a heroin problem while the grunge movement was just getting up and running anyway, right? They were using recreationally because they lived where they lived, frequently, uh, frankly, and it was just not good. So anyway, we move on now to what is the cultural attitude for rock and metal. Now the rebelliousness has kicked back in, right? We're rebelling against glam and all that sort of bubblegum commercial inauthentic bullcrap, 
right? So we had the rebellious side back. We had the cynical kind of F you, F society sort of thing. And we were nihilistic in the sense of like, well, screw all your big meta narratives about, you know, our nation or religion or all this kind of stuff because it's all just a cover for power games or whatever. Now, where is that sort of lyrical stuff most prominent? Mostly like artists like Rage Against the Machine, honestly. And they came around the same time period, like 91. That was their first record, right? So um, all this stuff kind of happens culturally at the same time, which is really interesting. So anyway, we're going to keep going kind of fast on this. I don't have a lot of space left on my device, so I'm going to try to be quick with this episode. Um, we're moving on into kind of the 90s culture. What is happening? What is taking hold among the fans? Not just the musicians, because basically the musicians set the precedent and the fans sort of follow and emulate, right? And vary to their own, you know, they make their own style of it and they create their own scenes by doing that, right? But it all starts from emulation somewhere. Well, we need to basically get down to the crux of the issue. What is the issue? What is the relationship between art and responsibility? And I don't think it was really of concern until the aftermath of the 90s. Now, what is the aftermath of the 90s? Well, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, what happened is rock culture kind of got stuck in the 90s. And what happened was no one wanted to grow up from that. And so a lot of the bands that were coming out in the early 2000s and in the mid-2000s, even up to the 2010s, were showing these same repeated themes of nihilism, depression, hopelessness, cynicism, um, just, yeah, all these apathetic lyrical themes. They started to become, it's funny, it's almost like commercialized nihilism. That's almost one way to put it. It's the lyrics are so played out. How many times have I heard, you know, I have nothing left or, you know, face the dark? And like, it's just so played out is just one way to put it. Now, where did this come from? I feel like what happened is you had all these people that were influenced by the bands of the 90s that were very, frankly, cynical in their attitude and just kind of like, F you, I'm just going to do what I want to do kind of thing. Now, what happened is you have a very big, you have a depression problem in the rock and metal community. It's not really talked about as being a rock and metal community specific problem because it's not. You know, this exists in other genres, communities, um, and less so in other communities. So depression has been a big problem in this community. So we've had artists, I'm gonna just call out a couple, like nothing more, that have done a pretty good job of framing their music in a way that is authentic and showing you true trials and tribulations without glorifying them and actually giving you some sort of light at the end of the tunnel in their lyrics. And I think that sort of little, that's all you need. You just need a little bit of light to balance out the dark, I think. And that's really where I think a lot of rock musicians become cynical. Now let's give these arguments their fair share, okay? They're, they're, they're due, okay? There is an argument that is the fans connect best with an artist who connects with himself the best. Now, that's valid. And there's plenty of times where artists have dug deep on themselves to reveal truths that are more general, uh, that are more general and applicable in other people's lives. There's something to be said for that, okay? And so that does not, that you can't discredit that necessarily just and say, oh, it's nothing. Right, that is, there is something to that because fans will go up to artists and say things like, I was so, like, when I heard that song, it made me know that I wasn't alone and because someone else felt the same way I did. That is a thing that happens a lot 
especially like for the really popular metal bands that do it right right now. And there's the other side of it that I want to talk about, which isn't really talked about very much because the blame is shifted. There is the other side of this coin where you have artists who will basically glorify their suffering. And in effect, they will create a culture that is harmful to their fans. And I'm just, I'm just going to be honest about that. There is a sort of hedonistic glorification of drug use in Alice in Chains lyrics, for instance. Songs like Junkhead and Godsmack are great examples of this. Now, you can't deny the effect that will have on the culture within that, you know, because basically every artist has their own culture that they've created with their fans. And so that culture has to be affected by the fact that those lyrics are borderline glorifying drug use. And I have evidence of that. It's from Lane Staley's mouth himself, or Jerry Cantrell, I think, made one of those two said it, but they were both sitting together. I forget which ones uh, made the comment specifically. But what they said was we had fans that would walk by the merch booth and go, basically like, I shot up, I'm high, just like you, aren't I cool, right? And they were like, we don't want our fans to do that. But as we've learned from like jazz mus musicians like Charlie Parker, do as I say, not as I do, is a terrible way to foster a culture within a, a particular community. It's, it's not gonna work. <laughs> if the president of the United States said, do as I say, not as I do, do you think we people just like, oh, okay, you know, no, absolutely not, right? People tend to be very skeptical of things like that. So when they say, guys, don't use drugs and stuff like that, but the first thing they're going to say is, but you do it, and I look up to you, and you're successful. Now, people may say, well, that's not the artist's fault. Well, let's be honest here. Can you really deny that if I, if I had an influence on my fan's psychology by the mood my music put them in. Would you think that if I glorified a particular substance and people looked up to me, that they would not now view that substance as normalized or okay because someone they look up to uses that substance and they're alive and they look fine on the surface, so what's the harm? For us to deny that that does not exist within a, a, a situation where you've created lyrics like that would be foolish. It's true. I'm sorry. And it's the evidence is what they said in that interview is that it doesn't matter if we say don't do drugs. If the lyrics say I do drugs and I like it, fans will take that as an okay to go do those drugs. Now, there is responsibility on the fan side for going and doing the drugs anyway. They should be at fault for doing that. But to act like the artist didn't create the conditions in their head to make it a little bit easier for them to give into those vices would be foolish. Now, again, the blame isn't just on the artist. The blame is on the individual who committed the, you know, the drug use, right? That's, it's not just all on the artist, right? I'm an artist. I'm, I'm trying to be fair here, right, to both the fans and the artists. But we just have to take into consideration that that effect exists. So we have to be very, very precautious and careful if you're gonna write lyrics that sound like they're glorifying something, be sure to just take a little extra step to frame it in a way that avoids this whole like, well, basically you said it was okay. Even though you didn't, even though Lane Staley basically doesn't say, hey, go shoot up heroin, like word for word, you can kind of infer it 
from his lyrics. Take out that inference room, okay? That's all I'm saying, that the, the responsibility of the artist is to know that music is more powerful than the artist. And if the artist puts in, essentially think of it like AI programming. If I put a, if I put a bias into the AI programming, well, the program is gonna run in a very biased manner. If I put a biased perspective in my music and I'm influential over the people who listen to my music, there is a chance, not saying every, because that would assume that everyone's just like, oh, I'm just gonna assume everything an artist says is correct. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a percentage of people who will listen to an artist and take everything they say as gospel because they idolize that artist. So you have a responsibility as an artist to use your words in a way that can be helpful to them and not lead them to, to have an interpretation of your music that could be harmful to them. Right now, you can't prevent every interpretation from being had of your music. Sometimes people will just twist your words and try to you know, make you think what they think even though it's completely the opposite, right? So you can't control that. You can't control that. And that may tie into how people are using drugs and using songs and, and not necessarily using the songs as justification for using drugs, but using the fact that the people who wrote those songs that are so deeply influential to them use drugs and they look up to those people, right? So we can't discredit what you may call the idealization factor, you know, like where people are idealizing you because you're an artist and you're a musician, right? Even though you're just a person, right? And you have flawed thoughts and things like that. If you can create that authenticity of I'm just a person with flawed thoughts just like everybody else, well, now you've created a very nice authentic, you know, authentic kind of lyrical style. But if you're just purposely writing about how things are awful and terrible and hopeless and you're profiting off you know fans like whoa this song is catchy even though the meaning and the and the morals of the songs are just apathetic misanthropic cynical nihilistic songs it's like you're gonna lead a, a certain percentage of your fans into a dark place because you didn't want to be responsible with the messages of your songs right and so what i'm saying is it's a balance it's a balance game. You can't just completely write to an audience or else you're not being authentic. But if you completely write to yourself and ignore the possibility that the way you're phrasing stuff could be taken in a way that could be potentially harmful to your fans, you need to be aware of that, okay? We need to be aware of that balance, okay? Between we do have to, in a sense, because like I feel like sometimes if you're being honest with yourself and you're in a bad place, your honest thoughts about you in a bad place may produce a bad moral for your song, right? And so I'm kind of, I don't want people to think that, okay, so that means all my songs have to be like, you know, everything's happy and everything's great. No, because that's not realistic either, right? Think of it from a Taoist perspective. Think of it like yin and yang, okay? If you're just focusing on the dark, which is mostly rock and metal's problem, and you have no light to counterbalance it, you're unbalanced, right? And just on the opposite, if you have all light and no sense of any darkness, you're not balanced, you're unbalanced, right? So we have to find the balance of being true to ourselves as artists and writing about things that are genuine to us. But we also have to have a responsibility to phrase our music in a way that we know that it's not going to harm the majority of people that listen to the music. 
you know, and by that, I mean by harm, I don't mean like physical harm, right? We need to separate like emotional harm from physical harm. But the problem is artists are at the forefront of culture. Artists essentially create part of culture. And if we're not responsible with how we create culture, we'll essentially create a, um, a generation of musicians who are profiting off other people's misery, maybe even their own misery, but they're just profiting off of misery with no positive aspect that can be attached to it. You know, some people say, well, all you need to do for a therapy session is come to a metal show. It's like, no, sometimes you do actually need to go to therapy. Metal is not a sufficient, you know, substitute for therapy. Some, like, if your situation's bad enough, a metal concert is not going to fix you. It's going to be a temporary place that you can go to to escape that's not a drug, even though sometimes people mix the two experiences. You don't have to. You can go to a concert sober and have a wonderful experience where you forget about all the trials and tribulations of life, right? But to think of it as like you don't need therapy. This is the kind of stuff, this is the enabling thing I'm talking about here. You have people who are at the forefront of metal cultures and bands that are saying things that they're, they think it's right, but they haven't thought about it at all. And they haven't thought about the effect it might have on their fans if they act out their words. And so that's all I'm asking people to consider if you're an artist yourself, is to just take a moment of consideration that your song could not very easily be turned into a song of glorifying something you don't want it to. In Lane Staley's case, if he did not want fans shooting up heroin in the bathroom and then walking outside going, thanks Lane, if he didn't want that, and I'm pretty sure he didn't want that for his fans because he knows the misery it caused himself, then he should have phrased some of those lyrics. I mean, if you don't believe me, go read the lyrics yourself, right? And if you think I'm overreacting, leave a comment, okay? I'd like to know if you think I'm overreacting over certain lyrics. But I, I do think um, Junkhead and Godsmack by Alice in Chains are great examples of glorification of heroin use. So it's, it's kind of like, well, Lane, you kind of gave them the okay in the song and then you do it, and then when you get a camera put in your face, you say, don't do it. But in any other circumstance, you do it. So do as I say, not as I do, doesn't work, okay? And so we have to be, as artists, cognizant of the fact that we may have an influence over our, our fans that could be, ten, be potentially negative. And we need to be aware of that and try to you know, mitigate that as much as we can without sacrificing the art itself. Because once you start to mitigate to the point where your art sounds like it's cookie cutter and it's just, it, you're not really uh, being creative and you're just kind of, basically you're putting forth propaganda. See, now you've lost all the magic, right? But it's about a balance, okay? And so I just wanted to put these ideas forward. I want you guys to think about this. Let me know what you think. I'll probably go into a little bit more detail about this subject more in the future. Um, I'll, I have something, I have an article that I'm writing called The Seattle Curse and the State of Rock Music that is tied a lot into this, but um, I'll go over more stuff just like that in that article when it's finished writing. By the way, if you want to know where you can check that out, go into the link below and go join our communities over at Locals and ThinkSpot. I'll be posting those articles there whenever they do get finished. So yeah, join up and uh, join the communities. Have a nice conversation. We have lots of different conversations that we don't have here on YouTube. So go there, check it out. Also, make sure again, like this video and subscribe if you liked what you saw today. I'm Logocentric. Thank you for watching.